Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Okay. Today, Cass, um, if you'll permit me, I would like to start out reading a little bit from a police constable's notebook from September of 1888. Yes. Um, And this details the personal items found on the body of a 43-year-old female victim of a crime, which took place in London's Whitechapel neighborhood. So, these are the items that were found on her person. Quote, one white-handled table knife and one metal teaspoon. A red leather cigarette case with white metal fittings, one tin matchbox empty, two short clay pipes black, one small tooth comb, one red piece of red flannel containing pins and needles, a ball of hemp, one tin box containing tea, one ditto dodo of sugar, one piece of flannel and six pieces of soap, two small ticking bags, 12 pieces of white rag, one cotton pocket handkerchief, red and white bird's eye border, one large white handkerchief, one piece of white coarse linen, and one piece of old white apron, and no money whatsoever on her. Is that it? That's it. (laughs) That's all. (laughs) That's all. Uh, And some of our listeners who are true crime buffs out there might have already picked up on this date that April mentioned. 1888 is the year. And maybe, Dress listeners, you've already made some connections to the events which occurred in the Whitechapel section of London during this year. The woman who carried these items was Catherine Eddowes, the presumed fourth victim of none other than Jack the Ripper. And Catherine was apparently carrying all of the items April just listed, not in a handbag or small piece of luggage, but rather she was carrying them in her pockets. Yes. And as today's guest has noted, quote, for many women, what was inside their pockets constituted an important, perhaps fundamental element in their maintenance of their place or reputation to the world, end quote. And we are so pleased to welcome Dr. Ariane Finto, Associate Professor at Université de Paris. Uh, welcome, Ariane, to the show today. And she is going to be here to discuss her wonderful book, The Pocket, A Hidden History of Women's Lives, 1660 to 1900, which she co-authored with Barbara Berman. Dr. Finto, thank you for joining us today. Ariane, thank you so much for joining us today on Dressed. You know, the history of the pocket has actually been one of our most requested episodes from our listeners. So we are thrilled to finally eventually be doing this episode with you. Um, And and you, of course, are joining us to speak about your and Barbara's book, which came out in 2019. And I just have to say, this is a serious tour de force of research. You guys did so much primary source research. It's amazing. And of course, it's like also really wonderfully illustrated with all these amazing photos of extant pockets that are held in museum collections all around the UK. Um, I think that you noted in the book that you documented nearly 400 examples um, in the course of your research. So, 
For our listeners, can you describe exactly what type of pocket your research in the book covers? Because it's a very specific style that was really kind of worn mainly during the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Yes. So the book is about uh, a very, as you say, a very specific type of pocket uh, that was worn by women um, for about two and a half centuries. uh, And they're detached pockets. So they kind of look like a sort of tear-shaped pouch or bag that would be attached to a tape or a piece of ribbon that could be worn either as a single or as a pair and that you wore under your skirt. And they've got usually, I mean, they've come in different shapes and sizes, but usually the standard form is this oblong tear-shaped bag with a vertical slit opening down the middle. Uh, and that you you would access through the side of your skirt or petticoat, uh, but they're detached from your clothing. Yeah, and, and it must be noted, of course, that fixed pockets, um, more akin to what we think of the modern pocket today, also existed at this same time. But the type of tie-on pockets that we're going to talk about today were very much a gendered garment. Why and how so? Yeah, there were. So um, what we call sewn-in pocket, we sometimes, which is the equivalent of the modern-day pocket, the pocket that's actually attached to your garment. They did exist, obviously. They existed mostly in men's garments, though. Um, so men had sewn-in pockets or integral pockets from roughly the 16th century, at least. This is the earliest dated examples that we have. So they could have pockets in their doublets, in their jerkins, in their breeches. Uh, They had lots of pockets, actually, but women didn't have attached pockets. They had these detached pockets. Although some women did, like it has to be noted that although we did look at detached pocket or tie-on pockets, there are examples of integral pockets in women's garments um, in the 17th century, for instance, uh, but they remain the exception. Yeah, and there's definitely a couple plates, fashion plates from Galerie des Modes, which was like from the late 18th century, where the, the women have patch pockets on the outside of their dress. But again, that is like the aberration, really. And aside from the museum collections where you were documenting the extant pockets, you consulted many, many written accounts from this period, not only accounts written by women describing their lives and, and, you know, their diaries, et cetera, et cetera. But much of the core of your research actually comes from the proceedings of London's Old Bailey. So I'm hoping you can tell us what was the Old Bailey and what type of resources did you glean from their records? Because this is really interesting. So the Old Bailey is a fantastically rich um, source. Basically, the Old Bailey was the main court for London for any crime that was happening in the city of London. So in the courtroom, you'd have the testimonies And there was a publication that started appearing, which was the proceedings of whatever trials were held at the Old Bailey. And this became, therefore, a publication that, you know, some people would read for kind of cheap thrills because obviously it's criminal stories. So it's it's kind of, you know, interesting. People found it interesting. Um, But it reproduces the testimonies of the defendants, of the prosecutors, and any witnesses that were party to or, you know, brought to give testimony during the trial. And it's incredibly vivid. So you have the voices of the actual people. 
uh, and it's people sometimes who wouldn't really leave any records. It, you know, they wouldn't write diaries or letters. Most of them are lower than the social scale, you know, from the people who do leave written records like account books or uh, diaries or uh, correspondence. So it's really interesting because you, you can see the hustle and bustle of London. And obviously the hustle and bustle of London is made of crime and pickpocket <laughs> And from, you know, people, really sort of common people, uh, people who, you know, sell sausages or apples in a market or potatoes or somebody who's, you know, running an inn or so it's it's a different voice and it's it's very vivid. Besides the court records and also like the diaries and correspondence that you referenced, you also use some really other really fun types of primary sources. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Uh, fun. I don't know <laughs> whether I'd call them fun, but uh, we have the uh, coroner's reports. <laughs> so coroner's reports, they basically uh, the documents that would be uh, produced uh, when a body uh, was found on the public pathway in the public street outside um, and it's so it's usually either somebody who just drops dead or um, suicide people you know people found drowned and obviously to try because they're just a body they're a corpse to try and ad- identify them the the coroner has to list the description of what they're wearing and whatever might help to identify them so they go through their pockets and list what's in their pockets so that's Although it's it's always a little bit grim because it's obviously somebody who's a young woman who was found drowned in the Thames. Sometimes there's one who has like a, a dish with arsenic in her pocket, so she's probably committed suicide. So they're very poignant, uh, but they also give you a snapshot of whatever a person, again, who wasn't necessarily elite, might carry in her pocket. Mm-hmm. I guess when I referenced fun, I was thinking more, and those are those are obviously an incredibly rich resource, but I was thinking more of like, you also used a lot of laundry records, which I thought was interest, really interesting as well. Yes. Yeah, so um, because pockets were part of your whites in a way, um, so they uh, went in with um, your chemise, your under petticoats, your crafts, your shoes, so all the kind of white linen, they are part of the things that people would wash regularly. So people would, you know, give out to the laundress or send to the wash house. And that's another interesting thing that we, because pockets are really liminal. They're they're Mm -hmm. in between dress and undress. They're in between something that you show and something that you hide. Uh, They're not always visible, but they're not always invisible either. They're kind of in between. So they allow us to glimpse at different layers of society, but also different layers of clothing and appearances and the management of that. And for instance, how people would wash their things, uh, how often, um, how that got organized or how disorganized that could be. Uh, because laundry was one of those occasions when the uh, order of the household came undone, or the women tried to keep track of their belongings by marking, by 
having lists and numbering different items and making sure which item is where, this is really an attempt at, at keeping order in a situation which is potentially completely chaotic because it's dirty linen. So already it's kind of subversive. Mm-hmm. It's getting anything that's potentially solid, dirty into the open somehow because somebody else is going to be looking at your dirty stuff, um, getting it mixed up maybe with somebody else's uh, dirty stuff. So the, the laundry moment is a moment of uh, chaos that women really try to keep under some kind of order. Uh, and it's the pocket is, this is one of the uh, really interesting things. We didn't start off thinking, oh, we're going to find out lots about laundering uh, and how you keep things clean and how you keep things in order. But in a way, it, it um, really provided us an insight into that as well. Mm-hmm. A very specific insight into women's lives and also the servants that were helping them as well. So I'm wondering, you know, speaking of laundry, and of course, we have talked about on the show many, many times that a lot of the historic dress wasn't, the outer garments weren't able to be laundered, right? So it's this inner layer of your linen, your undergarments that are kind of keeping your outer garments clean. Generally speaking, what can you tell us about the types of materials that were being used for these types of tie-on pockets? Because the book spans the period which is associated with the triumph of cotton. We started off expecting, in a way, to find more cottons. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting to see when you look at pockets, obviously dated from different time periods, which you know you can date from different um, clues, material clues in the objects, that cotton was not as prevalent uh, in pockets as it was maybe in terms of exterior fashion, like for instance, the printed cottons that were so transformative at the end of the 18th century. They make, they are present a little bit, a little bit obviously, uh, mainly in the form of patchwork pieces, so maybe they're kind of remnants from other projects. But people don't use um, those fashionable textiles so much for their pockets uh, and the, the kind of old fibers, the traditional fibers like linen um, does carry on very late into the 19th century, even when cotton in a way is cheaper because it's so, um, you know, it's produced uh, massively in, in, in Britain. But the, the, the textiles are, uh, are quite varied. So you have wool, you have um, leather, that's not really textile, but that's, you know, a sort of a material that's really hard wearing, that so makes practical sense for women who use or need dependable pockets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you find that associated with traders, innkeepers, for instance, servants who, who want sturdy materials, something that's going to, you know, stand uh, the, the strain, the weight, uh, and also the attempts of potential pickpockets. Yeah. But you also find really fine materials like silk, either plain or uh, sort of more elaborate. And obviously you do find some cottons, uh, but it's not a triumph of cotton as you might have expected or as we expected to find. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to see that maybe at different levels, the different depth of your garments, you maybe had different rationale about what was appropriate uh, or fitting 
to use. And that maybe things that were showing more printed cottons, for instance, um, where you have, um, there's a woman, for instance, in one of the old baby cases, I think, she has a trunk um, that is stolen. She's a servant and she's got a trunk with all her stuff stolen. So obviously she'd come to London with what she thinks she's going to need. So that's her belongings for that period of her life where she's going to be a servant, where she intends to be a servant in London. And in her trunk, you see she's got different pairs of pockets. She also has a printed cotton gown. She's got uncut or unused cotton. So cotton, you know, that she can potentially turn into anything she wants. And she's got, I think, two pairs of pockets, I think. Uh, and none of them are made of cotton. So it's not like she didn't have the means she because she had other things made of cotton, of printed cotton, but obviously not for the pockets. Mm. But that's something we found that was quite interesting. Or, But then sometimes the interior unseen layer uh, is still has some kind of echo with a more outside um, layer of your clothing. And we found this, for instance, there's a doll we looked at, and the door has a petticoat, the outside petticoat, and a pocket match. So they're made from the same fabric, uh, and it's printed cotton. Or in a bride's, um, the, the order of a bride for a um, sort of wedding attire. So she, uh, the, this is a, an order that is placed with a Scottish um, dressmaker. And the, the bride specifically asks for the pockets to be matched the same fabric and the same silk and the same color as the outside dress, um, the dress that would be visible. So it's, there's a really interesting interplay between visibility and invisibility and the different regimes of what you should prioritize for each. And sometimes they match and sometimes they don't. Yeah. That's really fascinating. We are going to take a very brief sponsor break, but more on just who was creating all of these pockets when we come back. Welcome back. Dr. Fenato, I'm, I'm curious, given this intimate, even kind of sexual association that sometimes comes along with the pocket, who was actually creating them? Well, interesting that... Um, you're highlighting the sexual nature because they are of a very evocative form. And this is when we give public lectures and we show the pictures, people are always um, or almost shocked by how sexual they, they look because they do have this oblong shape with a vertical slit down the middle. So it, it is very gendered in its imagery as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and these pockets were could be made at home. So you, you made your own because they're very simple to make to some extent. You know, they just use the basic methods that women knew. Uh, they, they knew their sewing, their basic sewing skills. So you could, it doesn't require any specific or expert needlework skills. Any woman in that period would know would be taught maybe she's not going to like it but she's she would have received some uh, needlework training Mm -hmm. and it doesn't require anything difficult it's really basic the 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 skills that are required so you could very easily make it make them at home and this is usually part of a 
what young girls were taught how to sew with. You know, it was a good exercise because it combined different things that you would then find in making a chemise or in making a petticoat. So that, and it's a miniature project. So it's, it's manageable for a young girl. So you made them yourself. You, but you could also make them, you could also buy them uh, ready made. And this, from a relatively early stage, from the 17th century already, uh, you find ready-made pockets. You, you see people buying ready-made pockets from itinerant sellers, people with their packs from the end of the 17th century. Also, too, you know, we were talking about needlework. What role did embellishment or, or decoration play, given that, for the most part, a woman's pocket or pockets were supposed to remain hidden? So that's a puzzling question, isn't it? Why are pockets embellished when they're mostly hidden? Well, there's two ways you can unpack that question, which obviously has puzzled us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the writing, the research and the writing of the book. One way you can sort of uh, think about this is, first is why not? And it's, is, is, is decoration purely geared towards visibility? Is, is decoration purely about other people's gaze or is it also about your own personal satisfaction that you know you're wearing something that is pretty, something that you have made yourself pretty, that you know your, your skills and your, your investment in time and labor has made prettier and isn't there a kind of pleasure and intimate satisfaction in wearing something that you know is pretty, even if nobody else can see it. Mm -hmm. And the other way you can also sort of turn the question around is to think that they might have been mostly invisible when worn, but they were not invisible when unworn. And because they are detached pockets, in a way they had a life as objects when not worn, and for instance, um, as a needlework project, they were something that were reasonably small, so easy to uh, take along to a friend. For instance, if you're invited to spend um, an afternoon, um, have tea, and you, we know that needlework was a very sociable activity, that women, uh, they weren't recluse uh, in their garrets uh, or sitting rooms doing their embroidery on their own. Uh, you would do your embroidery, you would do your work, as somebody was reading, as somebody else was in the same sitting room mm. um, playing, and it, or you're chatting. So it's a very sociable activity. And therefore, during those times, those sociable times where you would do your needlework, where if you, did a, if you made a pocket, then this pocket would be visible uh, to people and your skill in making that pocket pretty would be visible. And this is actually the visibility of the making of the pocket is probably one of the ways that learning how to make a pocket was transmitted. One of the really interesting things uh, we found is that although this object with it, this specific shape that doesn't really change uh, for about two and a half centuries so has existed in this way, there is no written instructions to teach women how to make this pocket or this type of pocket in print until 1838 is the earliest printed instructions. So what happened 
for the 150 years before that. Well, obviously, not having printed instructions didn't keep women from doing it, and their, then their daughters from doing it uh, in their turn, and then their daughters from doing it. And how would they have learned? Well, probably by seeing somebody else do it. So I think, again, it, it, it um, touches on the question of visibility, which is really interesting. And obviously, the relationship between dress and visibility is a, is a fraught one, is a, is a mooted point. You know, do you wear things purely for visibility's sake or are there other things at stake? Yeah. Well, and speaking of visibility, I'm hoping maybe you can tell us about some of the common types of decorative motifs that were used for pockets. Pockets, the the, the patterns or the uh, the decorative schemes that were used for pockets, they're different types of, of decoration. One of the main decorative vocabulary is that we find is embroidery. We often think of embroidered pockets. Uh, which are, tend to be more 18th century. Um, for embroidery, the pattern uh, is often floral, is often scrolling flowers that sort of grow from a pot or some kind of flower vase at the bottom of the pocket. Uh, and you have kind of scrolling flowers that circle the opening. Um, that's a basic template or decorative template that you find in embroidery, but you also have things that differ. You have pockets with uh, human figures, not just flowers, but also um, human, you know, sort of a man and a woman or a man's face. And you have pockets with letters, with names, which is uh, not just an identifying, it's not just a laundry mark, it's, it's more than that, it's somebody's full name. For the embroidery of pockets, women could obviously make their own, uh, whatever caught their fancy. Uh, you could have your pockets embroidered by somebody else. Uh, this is something you find in ads that, you know, one of the services offered is um, embroidered pockets. Mm-hmm. Uh, get, get your pockets embroidered. Uh, or um, uh, there were patterns that were printed and published in um, female magazines, uh, women's magazines of the time. Uh, and there's one that we couldn't include in the book because we found it only after. Uh, and it's a really pretty pattern and it's got squirrels eating nuts <laughs> spotted all across the face of the pocket. And there's another pattern that is interesting because there's an actual, it's a printed pattern that was published in the magazine. And we have actually a pocket that followed that pattern. Mm. Um, and that is, um, depicts a, uh, the ascent in a hot hair balloon that was made by Lunardi um, in London uh, in six, 1768, I think. And so it's more, it kind of depicts a current event or something that happened that caught people's fancy, uh, a little bit extraordinary, you know, somebody going up in the air in a hot air balloon and that's on the face of a pocket wow and then if you look at other types of uh, decoration not embroidery well that's patchwork and then in terms of patchwork it's not amazingly elaborate in terms of the different patterns you find in 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 quilts it's not like that it tends to be more standard one thing that's interesting is often the way decoration also serves a kind of design purpose. And this is something we found, for instance, with the embroidery. 
which, of course, there's a kind of aesthetic element to the embroidery, uh, but there's also something very practical about the embroidery, which is that it's going to reinforce certain areas. And we have noted that it tended to be the areas that are mostly susceptible to wear mm. or tension or strain. And that's the uh, outside or the sort of uh, opening around the opening is often a focus of decoration and below the opening, just below the opening. And that serves a very practical purpose of reinforcing those areas because obviously there's more stitching mm-hmm. and those, those stitches reinforce the fabric. And obviously with that, you can also read a more anthropological analysis of how you underline the opening. And by underlining the opening, you also both draw attention to it and guard it. This is something that anthropologists note about decorations on uh, different types of vessels. Often the opening is decorated as a way of sort of defining an inside and an outside and guarding the inside. Dr. Fento, thank you so much for joining us on part one of this two-part episode on the history of the pocket. Later this week, we will delve a little further into what types of items women carried in their tie-on pockets and the intimate nature of this private space beneath their skirts. We'll of course be posting some images of amazing examples of tie-on pockets on our Instagram this week. And you can find those at dressed underscore podcast. Also, we love hearing from you all. So you can DM us at that same Instagram address. Or if you would like to email us, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. And please tune in this coming Thursday for part two of this two-part episode. And until then, we hope you consider the manner in which you use your pockets next time you get dressed. Thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.